Welcome to Occupations, the podcast, where we discuss what it's like to hold specific jobs. Occupations is brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com, where you fulfill your vintage map gifting needs. Visit LotsOfMaps.com. Hi, and welcome again. It's Andy Jagalinzer. Welcome to Occupations, uh, Episode 9. I'm here today with Jen Reagan, and she is a clinical psychologist for Massachusetts General Hospital. And she also runs a private practice uh, that she does on her own. And um, she's here to talk about not only psychology, but a specific type of of psychology, and that's uh, OCD. Um, Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We all have a little OCD tendencies, right? Mm-hmm. We've all got it. I've got it for sure. I double check things, triple check things, quadruple. No, I don't quadruple. <laughs> I stop usually at triple. Uh, you know, I'm obsessive about certain things mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure others out there too um, have that. Jen, tell us a little bit about what describes what OCD is. Just okay. a general description. Right. Obsessive compulsive disorder usually involves obsessions or compulsions, usually both. Usually my patients have both. And those obsessions and compulsions usually become very disabling for people. So again, you you talked about a lot of us have, you know, these obsessive thoughts or behaviors that we do. There's a normal range, you know, for people to have those kind of behaviors and thoughts. But for people to have the disorder, it has to be really distressing or it has to be happening for, you know, at least an hour or more per day. Uh, it has to be really impairing, so really getting in the way of their life in some way. And there's a wide range of topics for the obsessions. So a lot of people you know, think of OCD, they think of, you know, people who are, you know, worried about germs and dirt Uh, They think about people who are worried they're going to leave the stove on, leave the door unlocked. Somebody's going to come in and like, you know, break in, take all their things. But OCD can show up in a lot of different ways. And so one of the things I'm really passionate about actually is educating providers about that and educating people just in the community about that. Because a lot of people go through their lives actually having OCD but don't realize that's what they have because a lot of people don't know that it shows up in these different forms. And so people can go years suffering and struggling in silence because they don't know that's what they have. That's a great description of, uh, of what OCD sort of is. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into a lot of those descriptions of, of, of things and, and what people should look out for uh, a little bit later. Uh, I want you to tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, where'd you grow up, first of all? Grew up around Washington, D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland. Oh, great. And so at what point did you know you wanted to get involved with psychology? Mm-hmm. Uh, were you in high school or, or before you went off to college? Did you have that in mind? Or was that something that you learned later in life to, to love? Growing up, I didn't consider psychology as a career. You know, my mom uh, was a high school teacher. She taught math and computer science. And my dad was also in computer science. My sister ended up in the computer science field. Um, and so, you know, I was always really good at math and computer science. I thought that's what I was going to go into. Uh, you know, I worked really hard. I was valedictorian of my class. Wow. Um, and all, all of my teachers, my science teachers, math teachers, computer science teachers, all really were expecting and hoping that I would be a woman in science. And I thought I was really going to do that, too. And then my senior year of high school, I took an AP English course and we were reading, you know, Shakespeare and I was reading things like The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath and just reading about these really complex, uh, dark characters. And I kind of fell in love with trying to analyze the human condition and what what makes us tick what makes us do the things that we do and feel things that we feel and you know I'd always been very analytical in the science arena but I decided I wanted to be analytical about people so I took a psychology class and I chose psychology and I really never looked back after that and you know I really I disappointed a lot of people when I made that decision. 
my teachers were not happy about the choice I made. My parents were a little confused, but very supportive. And I remember knowing, noticing that I was disappointing people. And I didn't like that, but I felt so passionate about it that I, you know, I went forward with it and I'm so glad I did. And whenever people ask me about that, I just, I told them it's so important to listen to your heart and to what you really love and to not be pressured by the expectations other people have of you. And again, I'm really glad I chose this career because it's been very fulfilling. It's a pattern for sure in this podcast, uh, occupations of all the folks that I, I've talked to, mm -hmm. the word passion comes up constantly. Mm -hmm. The people that I've been interviewing have obviously very interesting jobs, but mm -hmm. the one thing that is constant throughout all of them is they love what they do yeah. and they're passionate about what they do. And mm -hmm. I, am I correct to say that you are feeling the same way? Absolutely. I, you know, I tell people, even if I could retire, like if I could not do anything, if I could just not work, I still would do what I do. I really love uh, seeing my patients and um, again, there have been times in my life where, you know, before I became a psychologist, where there were people in my life who were struggling. Uh, like, I, you know, I had a friend who had a traumatic experience in middle school, like a sexual assault. And I remember going to see her in the hospital. And I was probably 12 at the time. And I just didn't know what to say to her. I, yeah. I, I, I. I I'm sure I did the best that I could. I was a supportive friend, but I remember feeling so helpless to know the right thing to say and to help her out of the place that she was in. And I just didn't ever want to feel that way again. And so you didn't want to feel like you couldn't help. Somebody. That's right. I didn't want yeah. to feel helpless. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but not so helpless for yourself, but helpless for, for other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. So when I chose psychology, I thought I'm going to go and learn the tools to really help people so that when someone comes and sits in front of me, like I will know what to do and I will be able to give them hope and be able to steer them towards a better life. That was really important to me. The word selfless comes to mind because you're putting other people's lives, I don't want to say in front of yours, but it certainly is a, a goal of yours to try to help. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's fair to say that, you know, most psychologists are selfless people and, and that, mm -hmm. that that's the goal uh, for most of them is they really want to help, truly help uh, folks? I mean, I, th I think so, yes. I mean, we really... We feel for our patients. And again, like, uh, you know, I treat people with OCD and um, anxiety disorders. And I was, um, you know, anxious myself as a kid. And so I think I think it's it's not selfless in that way, in the sense that, yes, I'm really trying to put someone their needs, maybe not in front of my own, but I'm really trying to prioritize them in that moment. But selfishly in certain ways helping them helps me too sure, of it, course you know it uh, makes me feel like i am you know important in some way and that i'm giving back and you know i don't understand everything my patients are going through obviously i haven't lived all their lives but i've had experiences that are similar to some of theirs and helping them you know i think we also help ourselves when we help other people Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So at this point you had graduated high school. Did you, so at that point you, when you went to school, you were targeting psychology. Yeah. So I had, I hadn't decided yet, you know, you have to start applying to schools at sure. the beginning of senior year and I hadn't quite decided yet. So I, I chose to apply to schools that were good in computer science and psychology because okay. I, I hadn't fully committed yet. And so I ended up going to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because it was good at both. I mean, it's more well known for computer science. But yeah, at that point, at the at the end of my senior year, I really knew like this is what I wanted to do. And so I just went, you know, full out psychology, 
uh, research. And I knew that I would go on to try to get a PhD after that because you, you need more training after your undergrad to become a psychologist. Great. So four years at Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you go from there for your PhD? So when I was applying to schools, I didn't know quite where to go, but my one of my professors, uh, he encouraged me to pl- apply to the University of Texas at Austin. Hmm. Uh, And again, I'd never been to Texas. I grew up on the East Coast. And so my friends made fun of me for applying down there um, because we just had certain stereotypes of what people from Texas. You didn't own a cowboy hat or something? I I, I did not have any. Big buckle on your belt or anything? No, no, none of that. But um, so but when I went down there to visit, I don't know if it, if you've been to Austin or it's just I fell in love. I just fell in love with Austin. Yeah, it's a great city. And just the the, the culture, you know, you know the, there's a saying keep Austin weird just because it was, you know, the music and the um art. Yeah, the yeah, the art and uh it was just just full of it's so vibrant and um so I just loved living there. So I went to school there to get my PhD in clinical psychology. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point did the OCD start to uh, become clear as your path? Mm-hmm. Was it during school or was it after school? Uh, my first year, we did uh, an internship learning how to do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the the best treatment for OCD. And so I did an, uh, like a practicum experience learning how to do that and saw like a, a, you know several anxiety patients with anxiety disorders um, and also saw OCD and I really loved it it was it was so magical doing a treatment with someone and seeing them get better like I was like wow this really can help improve someone's life like what I just did with them has led them to a better quality of life but I, I wanted to try everything, I think. And I usually encourage people to do that. I feel like it's really good to try all different kinds of therapies and populations uh, because sometimes it's like, how do you know? Like, how do you know what you really want to focus on? So I did. I saw children and families. I saw couples. I did group therapy, which I really loved. Uh, I did all some- OCD Centered no, on, oh no like so these were different depression Got it. eating Got it. disorders okay. trauma and so i really i wanted to do it all and i did um you know psychodynamic therapy as well which was a great experience and i i usually you know for therapists i think it's really good to get your own therapy so i did my own therapy i was part of a therapy group uh, which i really loved it was a process group and so i did all of that but then when i did my internship at Mass General Hospital. So I applied all over the country, um, ended up coming here. It's an excellent hospital. After my internship year, I found my way back to, you know, treating people with anxiety and started working in the OCD clinic at Mass General. And just really, you know, again, fell in love with the patients. I just love that population. And uh, my, my two bosses, Dr. Michael Jenicky and Sabina Wilhelm, um, who both ran the clinic, uh, you know, kind of welcomed me in and started doing, helping them with their research and clinical work. And unfortunately, uh, recently, Dr. Jenicky passed away. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So he was uh, just a pioneer in the field of OCD. Hmm. And uh, he will be sorely missed. And we're just all trying to carry on his mission to help people with OCD. And uh, I hope to, again, add to what his, what his mission was and what his legacy was. So you mentioned research. Mm -hmm. Um, So now you're in your professional career, you're Mm -hmm. starting to get paid for this and you're, you're Mm -hmm. off and running. You don't have your own practice at this point. I assume you're, you're working strictly at Mass General. Right. Okay. So when you mentioned research, are we talking about drugs or are we talking about uh, trying lifestyle changes or all of the above or uh, what kind of research were you doing? So it was some interventions like so trying all the above right seeing do lifestyle factors you know to help change OCD. Uh, There were a lot of drug trials happening at Mass General. 
I worked on studies where we did cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD. And what's really exciting is that we also have researchers who are doing research on the impact of TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation for OCD. And then there are researchers also doing brain surgery for Mm. patients with OCD, for people who are really severe and where meds and therapy have failed. Uh, And uh, some research is being done on just what causes OCD, like the the genetic factors and other things that uh, contribute to OCD onset. And um, other people are also looking at how uh, infections actually. So uh, infections like strep can actually lead to the development of OCD. Oh, did not know that. If it's left untreated, sometimes it can cause um, OCD to come on very suddenly. So usually, you know, children might get that. So one day, you know, you have a, a normal child and the next day they wake up in severe OCD. I've had some you know, young adults, so people who are like 16, 17, 18, either, you know, uh, in high school or starting college who get this. It's again, it's, it's more rare for it to happen later, but it, it just, it can happen overnight. And so that's becoming, people are becoming more aware of how infections can actually impact the brain and lead to mental health disorders as well. And so some people are doing research on like, how do we treat those infections and the inflammation that it causes so that it also can help people who have OCD as a result of those infections. That's new to me. I, I didn't realize that OCD can be caused by other outside, you know, stimuli. Mm-hmm. I just assumed and because I'm a layman, that's mm-hmm. what I do. But I assumed that it was just something you were born with. And uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It, it can be. I mean, there's okay. a huge genetic uh, component to it, uh, but that genes don't explain everything. And so we know that there are other factors that also go into it. Can you just give me a little bit of a clinical explanation about what's happening in the brain? I'm, I'm assuming if mm-hmm. that's, if that is what we're talking about, what is, what is happening in the brain that is causing the OCD, uh, behavior? There are all these factors that make it more likely that somebody's going to develop OCD. Like, right, we've talked about genetics, um, infections. Um, Sometimes when people uh, go through a traumatic experience, that can make either OCD come on or or worsen. Um, And then also, like, like lifestyle factors. I've had people who have come in who maybe they were anxious at some point, but not to the level of OCD. And maybe they were drinking too much, um, and that actually spiked a, a case of OCD for them. Mm. So again, lifestyle factors can can blow it up. So all those things, what happens is in the brain, there are different brain structures that we know are abnormal in some way, and we know that there's a there's a loop, a specific loop in the brain that is not also not functioning properly. And we also know that uh, there's a chemical called serotonin that's in our brain, and that's also not acting correctly in the brain. So there are lots of studies that have been done to document that this really is a brain disorder. There are actual changes that we can see where if you looked at someone's brain who does not have OCD versus someone who does, you can see actual differences in their brain structures and the way that their brain is functioning. Uh, so it's again, it's a real, it's a real documented brain yeah. problem. Do you often find it paired up with depression, or uh, are there other disorders that are paired up with them, and you're mm-hmm. finding similarities or potentially, you know, the same kind of brain behavior? Yeah. So in the uh, the clinic that I work in, we call it the OCD and related disorders program because there's a cluster of disorders that seem to lumped together. Like if you're, if you, someone in your family has one of these, then you're more likely to also have one of them. And some of my patients have multiple disorders in that category. So we, again, we have OCD, we have something called body dysmorphic disorder. We have uh, Tourette's or, you know, motor and vocal tics. Trichotillomania is where people do hair pulling and where they, they pull out so much hair that they have bald spots or people who, who, um, you know, need to wear wigs because they no longer have hair. We have uh, skin picking, and we also have hypochondriasis where people worry about their health. So those 
disorders seem to link genetically to one another. Um, but then, yes, I have a lot of patients who also have depression. And sometimes it is just it's co-occurring with the OCD and other times it's because of the OCD. It's just like their OCD is so severe. It's limiting them so much that, of course, like they're depressed because of that. So but sometimes they really do operate independently from so, each other. So does that mean uh, all the other disorders that you name that are in your clinic? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like and I, I assume you don't know the answer if it's true or not, but uh, do you feel like they are very much related is that why they're in in the same study, or mm-hmm. or is it w- we believe they might be, but we're not sure, and they're close enough, uh, you know, relatively to under, to, you know, to maybe keep them in the same category? Is that? I mean, again, uh, genetic studies have linked them together, and you know, just uh, anecdotally, I've seen enough patients where I really see them having multiple disorders within that group. That again, just like clinically, I've seen those things hang together, but. You know, studies have also shown that these disorders clump together and uh, seem to actually be related to one another. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. So you're working at Mass General Mm -hmm. and you're putting in all kinds of time on research and seeing patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, at what point did you decide, I think I want to do a little bit on my own too? Mm -hmm. Because you're doing both today. Right. But you wanted to do a little little on your own. At Mm -hmm. what point was that? Probably two years into working there, I uh, started doing just like a little side practice, you know, really tiny and it's very, very common. A lot of uh, clinicians at Mass General have a side private practice along with the work that they do at Mass General. And I really, I just wanted to have like a little more freedom in how I do my clinical work. So at Mass General, we are servicing so many patients. Like we're trying to give access to care to many, many people. And because of that, we also have to somewhat limit the care. I mean, again, we give excellent care. We always try to, you know, get people to the best place that we can. And when we can't do individual work with them, we often will, you know, I have a group of uh, OCD individuals who I will see, who I see long-term. But again, because we're trying to see new people, we can't just keep the same people on our caseload because we're trying to reach a lot of people who are in need. And so uh, I'm, I'm limited in that way. And so in private practice, I have a little bit more freedom to see people for longer periods of time if they want that. Uh, I also like seeing other disorders. I like seeing people with, you know, depression, eating disorders, um, sometimes doing a little bit of psychodynamic work with people around their like family issues. And so that's something that I got to do privately that I couldn't do as much of in at Mass General. You know, it's in our rearview mirror at this point, but I often bring up uh, COVID, mm-hmm. COVID-19, where although it was several years ago that we were really sort of stuck in our homes and no one could leave, what did you do during that time period for your patients who desperately needed you? How did you, how did, uh, did Zoom become a, a mm-hmm. thing for you? Yeah, thank goodness for Zoom. Uh, we actually, Mass General had been piloting a project of doing a video you know, Zoom calls with people about a year or so before the pandemic happened. And thank goodness for that, because they were already set up to do that. And I had already been piloting that with them a year before this all happened. So I felt very lucky that I already done that and that they, again, already had somewhat of that infrastructure built in. They had to expand it to all of the clinicians who hadn't been part of that yet. But at least we had gotten the ball rolling and yeah, thank goodness for it because people were in such need. Again, especially my OCD patients who had, um, you know, again, they don't deal well with uncertainty. We had so much uncertainty. If you think about the classic OCD patient who's worried about contamination, mm-hmm. you just took someone who has usually irrational fears and we're now telling them and everyone, your fears are rational. Yeah. And I know... I mean, a lot of us, myself included, 
were initially, you know, washing the groceries and washing everything. And I, I got a little bit of a window into what my patients with OCD feel like and are doing on a regular basis. Now, again, I was, you know, again, before we realized you don't need to clean your groceries. When I was doing that, I was doing it for not a long period of time. My OCD patients were spending three, four, five hours cleaning groceries, cleaning um, their homes. I mean, they were getting very stuck. So everything that we were all going through in some way, they were going through it, you know, 10 times as worse. And it was, it was very challenging. I was seeing my current patients more. I was seeing old patients who had come back who were really struggling. I was seeing new patients. We, we were just all of us in the clinic were seeing many more people than we actually needed to for our caseloads just because people really needed it. So since that point, have you seen a drop off now? Are some people finally, now that now that COVID is, I don't want to say gone, but mm-hmm. it's certainly not uh, the panic that we were in at that mm-hmm. time. Ha- has it dropped off from that point? I mean, have some of your patients said, okay, I'm, I'm good now. Mm-hmm. This is over. I It was a period of my life and now I've figured out how to move on. Or is that not true? I'd say most of them have. Some of my patients are still somewhat stuck. Uh, they have not quite returned back to their baseline level of functioning that they were at before all of this happened Uh, they're still taking precautions that most of us are not taking or avoiding things but again I'd say most people especially over this past year I think have come out and uh, taken more risks than they had been but some of my patients are kind of changed potentially forever from this experience again my, my goal is to try to get them back to where they were before the pandemic but some of them, I think, may be changed forever from this experience. Yeah, that's very sad. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that OCD is a growing field? Are more people becoming symptomatic? Is this something where you feel like the same amount of people are coming down with symptoms? Or do you think that there's something that is growing the number of patients mm. uh, per capita? That's a good question i you know again i i don't know the answer to that question exactly i do know that i think our awareness of what it is is growing i think a lot more people are understanding again the ways that it can present itself and so i have patients who will come to me and they'll say i've had this for 15 or 20 years and I didn't know what it was. But then I saw Oprah talk about OCD or then I, you know, I heard about Howie Mandel or, you know, I heard about these other people in the news talk about it. And they realized, oh, my gosh, that has been me for almost either my entire life or, again, the last two decades. So they were living in a nightmare for years, but didn't have a name for it. And again, some of my patients have, and again, I can talk about this more about these specific symptoms, have these symptoms that are so shameful, they are terrified to tell anyone Mm. about them. And so I think the internet, even though there are downsides to social media and everything like that, there are some real pros to it as well, because people see themselves in people on the internet who are brave enough to talk about these issues and then they're going to get help. Whereas, you know, years ago when we didn't have the, you know, again, social media and the internet and the, the, the knowledge that we do, people just suffered in silence with it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're mentioning that there are lots of different symptoms that could occur. And let's talk about this because there are people out there like what you're saying that, are suffering today and maybe maybe one of them will, will hear this podcast and say, hey, you know what? I should look into this. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about some of the symptoms. So again, like I've talked about the classic worrying about germs and dirt and again, people who are worried about leaving the stove on or the curling iron on or leaving the door unlocked and you know causing harm to their home. But it can also show up 
as people who are uh, worried that they're going to harm themselves or harm someone else. So for instance, again, and we call OCD the doubting disease because it makes you doubt basic things. Like again, like, am I going to get a disease from this doorknob? Like I'm, I'm doubting, like is, is doing this safe? Or I'm doubting, do I even know how to turn off a stove? Do I know how to lock a door? They're really struggling to know whether or not they can trust themselves around basic things that you or I just take for granted. Like, sure, I know how to turn off a stove. Sure, I know how to lock a door. Is it self-doubt? Is it more um, that they don't believe in themselves? Or is it that they don't trust outside a stimulus that someone else might have left a disease on this and I can't trust the world? Mm-hmm. Or is it that they don't have good self-esteem and they don't believe that they can succeed in, in getting it, through this? It can be, it can be both. Um, okay. But again, so it, it can be, I can't, you know, trust or, or I have doubt about whether or not this surface is clean, but it can also be, I don't feel like I can trust that I know how to do a basic thing like turn off a stove. And so because it can attack things like that, it can also attack basic things about ourselves. So again, some of my patients will have thoughts like, what if I suddenly was driving down the street and I just drove into oncoming traffic or a tree? What if I jumped out of my car when I was driving? What if I hurt someone else? Like, let's say I'm in the kitchen and I'm cutting an apple to eat it. And my husband's standing next to me. What, what would stop me from just like stabbing him? Like really, they will have these thoughts or, you know, what would stop me from, I'm boiling water on the stove to make pasta for my kids. What would stop me from like dumping that water on them? So again, my patients with OCD will have these thoughts that come across their mind. where like, what if I could again, harm myself? What if I just took all of my pills all of a sudden? What would stop me from doing that? Yeah. Or what if I, again, what if I harm someone else who I love and it scares them a lot? Now, again, what I'll say is that most people that, you know, they, they did a study a long time ago where they asked just like average, you know, people, college age people, they gave them a whole long list of thoughts like this, you know, just asking them, do you ever have random thoughts like, like these? And I think 95, at least 95% of people said, yes, I get some of these random thoughts. Like, what, yeah, what if I ran into a tree or like, what if I stabbed someone? But most people are able to dismiss those thoughts. They're able to say like, that was weird. That was a weird thought. I'm going to let that go. My OCD patients, what happens is they get that thought and they take it seriously and they worry that it's really true. And that's kind of what distinguishes them from someone who you know, again, does not have OCD, but has a, a random thought like that and can say like, that was weird. I'm just going to kind of let that It's go. not something that they, they want to no. act on. No. It's just the fear of, of that what one in do? a million thing yeah. that could happen. What if I just yeah. lost control and, yeah. and, and did this, even though I do not want to, sure. they have no history of harming other people, harming themselves. Like it's completely irrational. And again, it's similar to the, the worry about the stove, like, again, like, do I not know how to turn the stove off? It's also like, what if I'm a horrible person and I could murder someone, but I just don't know it? Or what if I could harm myself yeah. and lose control and I just don't know it? It's like, I don't trust or know myself. I doubt myself. People also can have it about their sexual orientation. So where they wonder, what if I'm secretly like bisexual or gay? And I just don't know it. And I've also had, you know, clients who identify as gay and they'll say, what if I'm secretly straight? Like, what, what, if, what if I'm the opposite of what I really think I am? Sure. Again, they just get very caught up in it. And again, there's not a lot to justify it, but they are constantly wondering their head, is this the case? And again, these thoughts can be so disabling, um, happening for hours a day. Uh, and making them question themselves that sometimes people, again, become suicidal over this because Mm -hmm. they're just, they're caught in their own mind. And again, like I said, it is normal. Most people might have a question about their sexuality at some point. They'll be like, oh, could I be? Maybe. You know, most people can live with the uncertainty of not knowing exactly where they fall on the spectrum of sexuality. But my patients with OCD can't tolerate that. And they really again, even without any basis to it, start really questioning that about themselves. 
Lotsofmaps.com, vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. Okay, so here's where you come in. Mm -hmm. They come to you. They find you. What do you do? How do you help them? I would assume that there's pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. and there must be other ways, therapeutic. Mm -hmm. um, explain to me what it is that you are doing. Uh, wh what can help them? So usually, you know, it, it depends on the patient. I would say that 80 to 90% of my patients are probably on medications, probably just because of the severity of their cases. Some people come into my office and they are not on medications. Maybe they have a, like a mild to moderate case of OCD and they'll say, I want to try to get this under control without medications if possible. And so I say, okay, let's, let's try therapy. Let's try, you know, changing your lifestyle factors, right? Like let's reduce alcohol use and caffeine use, make sure you're not, you know, using drugs, make sure you're getting enough sleep, make sure you're, you know, eating well, exercising, and let's do therapy and let's give it a few months. And if we're making a dent, great, then you may not need meds. But usually if people are three months into therapy and they're doing all the exercises and they're not they're not getting better, then I really come back and I revisit meds again. Again, it's someone who it's like, you know, if you have diabetes and you're trying to, you know, do exercise and diet changes, but it's just not enough and you need to try medication for it. It's the same kind of idea. It really depends on the severity of the person's case and um, if like, kind of those other interventions work or not for the person. So I'm assuming there's no miracle cure. <laughs> you're not going to say, okay, this med alone, you don't need therapy. Go take this and you're fine and you'll never need to see me again. I'm assuming that doesn't happen or is well, it still a possibility? You know, again, I do have some patients who will go on a medication and it really helps them a lot. Great. And they need very little from me. Meds can be a lifesaver Great. for people. And, and again, most of my patients are on them because they don't have mild cases. They have more moderate to severe cases and they really need it. And again, sometimes when they're on the right meds, the work that we're doing together is so effective because that medication is allowing their brain to learn from what our, we're doing together that they don't need to see me for that long, which is which is great. Are there examples of folks that don't need medication at all? And it, it is a lifestyle change. You have a experience of that? Yes. Too? Yeah. I've had patients who have come in who, again, I've had uh, people who will say, oh, I'm um, maybe they were socializing a lot and drinking a lot and like very large, large amounts of, of alcohol just because, again, they were socializing and um, in that environment and that blew up the OCD. And so doing some of the therapy and just getting the alcohol under control, they didn't need medication anymore. So, yeah, for some people, those lifestyle factors and, and therapy alone is enough. And then for other people, you know, just their biology and their genetic background is too strong and therapy is not enough. And I really try to help people understand that they haven't failed if they if they've done the therapy and they're not better some people feel really bad about that or they feel like they're a failure and i tell them this is not your failure you're just again your your biology and your genetic uh, background is um, it's just it's really strong it's really strongly impacting you and again thankfully we have medications that will target that to get it back to a place where their brains are functioning more the way that they should. Tell me a little bit about the therapy. So mm -hmm. what what kind of things are you doing with, with folks? And I, I imagine it varies depending on the symptoms and mm -hmm. the severity, but is there a general theme? Mm -hmm. So again, the, the general uh, umbrella of therapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And within that, for OCD, we're doing a lot of exposure response prevention, or ERP. And so, again, I'll take a simpler case, like someone who's afraid of using the stove because they're like, I'm worried, I'm going to leave the stove on and I'm going to burn down the house and all, all my family in it. And so now I'm not going to even use the stove anymore. Or if I use the stove because I'm forced to, I'm going to check it 10 times. I'm going to leave the house and be half an hour away. And guess what? I'm going to turn back and go back to the house and, and check it again. Uh -huh. 
I'm going to call my loved one at home or a neighbor to go check it. I'm going to take pictures of the stove so I can check it later. I mean, again, so if we take a person like that, usually what I'm helping them do is use the stove. So that would be the exposure. It's like, okay, let's say you're avoiding that. I'm going to help you confront your fear because you're avoiding the stove. So we're going to actually use the stove, but we're not going to do any of the normal things that they do Hmm. in order to feel safe. So again, in those moments when they're, you know, checking the stove for the 10th time or driving back home to check it in that moment, in the short run, they feel better because they're getting reassurance. Everything's okay. But what they're doing in the long run is they're reinforcing this idea that they can't trust themselves. Because again, people who trust themselves don't check the stove for the 10th time. People who trust themselves don't drive back home to check the stove. They don't take pictures of it. And so your brain is really noticing what you're doing. And it's noticing, wow, we're checking it for a 10th time. Wow, we're driving half an hour back home to check it. We are calling people to check it maybe we can't trust ourselves. It's this bad feedback loop. Um, Or I give people the example of um, it's like if you uh, went to the grocery store with your niece or nephew, who's a little kid and you're in the checkout aisle and they see the candy and they start having a temper tantrum. Like I want the candy. I want the candy. And you finally give in and you give them the candy. You have um, won the battle, but lost the war in the sense that, Yes, that child has now stopped crying because you gave them what they wanted. But the next time you go to the store, what's going to happen? They're going to cry again because you rewarded them for that behavior. Right, right. And our brains are the same way. When we, when my OCD patients reward the doubt feeling by actually giving into it and responding to it like, this could be true. I could have really left the stove on. It could be burning down the house. Again, in the moment, they feel better, but in the long run, they've just told their brain, yeah, this is really true. I'm a dangerous person who can't be trusted. And so we have to approach those things they're afraid of and not do any of those other responses. And normally I'm fading those responses out um, in a slow way, not all at once, because, again, it's like going from drinking four cups of coffee a day to none, and, and that's really painful and so I'm, I'm slowly weaning them off of those behaviors over time so they can really learn, I don't have to do this anymore. And guess what? I can trust myself. So yeah. we're doing a lot of that. I would imagine that's terrifying for them. Yes, it can be, it can be scary. Yeah. But I, I always tell people, I will never make you do something you're not ready to do. Like you are in charge. You drive the bus. You know, you decide I'm here to coach you. And I'm always trying to aim for that middle level of anxiety where they're like this is yes this is scary this is challenging but I can handle it like I I can do this again I'm not gonna make someone who can't swim jump off a diving board the first time they get in the pool it's like we really are working up to that because of the self-doubt is it something that is easy to have a setback to uh to go back to behaviors it can you know and again when you're doing exposure therapy you just you can't always control the situation. So, for instance, I also have people who are, you know, they're worried they're going to run someone over with their car. Right. So I often will get in the car with people and do driving exposures and we'll, you know, drive through crowded areas together. And I can't control the people who are in that environment. And so if someone dashes out in front of us while we're doing that exposure, that could be more challenging than we were expecting it to be which can kind of make people want to pull back a little bit and so yes that's that's always something that we are watching out for and we know i always anticipate that with my patients that we can't always control the exposure exercises but we do the best we can to try to you know get it into a range that that they can handle and again i say when these unexpected things happen try to see them as a gift like try to see them as like lean into them like lean in i'm always telling my patients lean into this try not to lean away and let's try to embrace this and see it as an opportunity to grow you survived it you survived it that's yeah. right you survived it and yeah. you're still here and let's 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 keep going and not let your ocd derail you from you know where you're trying to go even little wins I would assume are wins. Mm-hmm. Would you say you, you, your patients have been a hundred percent successful in in that regard? Or, or have you run into patients where you've had absolutely no 
effect? Mm. Um, has that happened? No, I'd say that with everyone, there have been some wins. Obviously, it is a range, right? Like I have some people who will say at the end of treatment, they're so grateful. They feel so much better. They'll say like the thoughts are so infrequent and when they come they don't bother them they just feel like they've gotten their lives back and mm. they feel so grateful and that feels really good um, and then I also have really sick patients who are still struggling with OCD hours a day what I will say is that you know for some of those patients we have done more extreme interventions you know like more medications I've had some patients who have done brain surgery for OCD and I have seen improvements from that. It's, it's amazing. Hmm. It is amazing to see what can happen when you get someone under the knife and they, they really do change as a result. Hmm. It's, it's, it's made me a believer. And I think it's so exciting to see where the science is going to go in the future that just like, you know, we break a knee and we, a surgeon can go and change that for us. At some point, I think brain surgery will be more available to people. We'll be able to tailor it more easily to really help the people that we really are struggling to help still. But at this point, it's an extreme situation, it is, I would assume. It is. You have to have tried everything else and you have to be a very severe case to yep. even have that be a possibility for okay. you. You talk about lifestyle changes. Have you found other instances where triggers might be induced by other people where it's not necessarily just in your patient's head that these things are happening, but there are, let's just say someone in their family who is triggering them mm -hmm. uh, that they can't. I mean, when you talk about lifestyle changes, are we talking about potentially like you need to move out of this situation? You need to move and move away from this person because they're they're not helping you. I mean, is, is that a factor at all or is it mostly just internal? Obviously our environments can, you know, affect us. I'd say that usually when I'm working with patients with OCD and their families, I am looking at how families might be accommodating my patients OCD in that way. So again, for Let's say I have, again, I'll use the classic example of someone who's worried about the stove. They might often be trying to get their, you know, husband, wife, kids, whoever in, is in their household, roommates, to turn the stove off for them or to check for them. They might be um, just like avoiding certain tasks and being like, hey, can you do this instead? And in that way, family members are like, again, quote unquote, trying to help you know, their, their loved ones. But a lot of times that's actually also making the OCD worse. Um, and so usually with loved ones, I'm trying to get them to slowly cut back on the accommodations they're giving OCD patients. And again, some of my OCD patients are ready for that and others are really not looking forward to losing the accommodations they're getting from their family. But so, so you're in contact with the families as well? I work with families a lot. Oh, that's great. Yes, because again, OCD doesn't just affect the person. It affects the people around them Got as it. well. Got it. And, and a lot of times family members are not sure what they should be and shouldn't be doing. And a lot of times they are coming in saying, I've been trying to help. I've been like checking the stove for them. And I've been like cooking because they can't do it. I'm really, and they don't realize that some of the things they're doing are actually making it worse for the patient. But they're doing the best they can. They are just, they're all trying to survive. Um, but the goal is that as the patient is getting better, we want to like wean the family off of doing some of those behaviors. But it sounds like you're also talking about like, are there maybe stressful situations that patients are also in that could be making you know, your, your worse? Your bratty little sister just, uh -huh. you know, is triggering you in one way or another to uh, anxiety wise to, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is the result, um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And she won't stop doing it. Let's mm -hmm. say, I don't know, I'm just bringing, making something up, but mm -hmm. am I way off, off there? No, I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, yes, many times my patients will say, uh, you know, let's say they have a contamination concern and they'll say my mom or my dad or my husband or kids, they're, they're much, um, they're, they're not taking their shoes off when they come in the house or like they didn't wash their hands enough or they, I mean, there are things that people can do that can feel triggering to my OCD patients 
for sure. My job is to try to figure out, okay, is the, the family member's behavior in the normal range? And it's my patient who is overreacting. And so in that case, I need to help them realize this is more your OCD. Actually, like your family member is is doing something pretty in the normal range. It's just that you don't feel like it is because you are being influenced by your OCD. And, um, and, and then I also am there to help them figure out when are they having a legitimate reaction to something that their family member is doing that isn't in the normal range or that is a problem. And, you know, my, my patients, their OCD can flare when they're in a legitimate stressful situation. So like a really difficult job or like an abusive boss or a really stressful relationship, a bad living situation, all of those things can also blow up their OCD. And so if there's a legitimate problem happening in their life that is a real problem, then oftentimes I'm either helping them cope with that or right, remove themselves from it. I guess that's so kind that, of what, what I was thinking mm -hmm. is along the lines of stress being brought on legitimately mm -hmm. by someone or something. Mm -hmm. And hey, you know what? Is it time to maybe move on from this situation? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that, that, that is definitely yeah, I definitely, um, definitely address those issues too. I mean, yeah, okay. OCD is definitely exacerbated by stressors in our lives. And so I'm looking at the whole person. I'm looking at their whole life. And if they're, again, in a legitimately stressful situation, I'm helping them either cope with that differently or remove themselves from it. Is there a typical age range of your patients or is are there typical ages that symptoms may show even though they're not necessarily facing up to the fact that they have mm -hmm. AC, OCD but are effects of OCD do they typically come on at a certain age or is this really kind of across the board any age could happen so we see it in you know different different points. Sometimes uh, children get it, you know, as young as like age four or five years old. And again, I treat more adult patients, but I have adult patients who have children. So they have OCD and then they have children. And all of a sudden they're noticing, oh, my five-year-old, they're washing their hands a lot or, oh, you know, they're lining up all their things, all their, all their toys and shoes in a very specific way. And they freak out if I move them one inch or they're doing these nighttime routines where I have to say I love them and good night like 10 times a night. So that can happen for as young as age four or five. It can also happen around adolescence, you know, when like hormones are changing. And um, I also see it a lot, you know, usually like, you know, 20s, maybe like as late as like age 30. For some of my patients, it really starts to come on in early 20s, like around college age. That's when a lot of my patients will say, you know, I was maybe anxious as a kid, but it didn't really get bad until college. But you, you can see it at different points. But a lot of times you're, people are getting it by age 30. And but again, it can happen at a very young age yeah. as well. So is there anything new that you're working on or in the future? Are there different tools or different things that are, are coming in this realm? Yes. What, um, what I'm so excited about is and, feel, and feeling passionate about is also just access to care. So, you know, at Mass General, uh, that's a big mission is to reach as many people as possible because there are lots of people in need. And there are also, like, we have so many good resources in Boston, especially for OCD. You know, we have the OCD Institute at McLean. Uh, we have the International OCD Foundation that's also based in Boston. We have the Center for OCD and Related Disorders at Mass General. And then we just have a lot of clinicians in our area who treat OCD. Also, um, No OCD is like an app and organization that's gotten started uh, and is reaching a lot of people. However, there are still large areas of the country that do not have resources. Like you might be in the middle of Kentucky somewhere, not close to a large city and have OCD and have no treaters in your area who can help you. And so the one of my goals and Mass General's goal is to make it so that people like that have resources and can get help in some way, even though they're not close to a treater who can help easily. There's a gentleman named Nathaniel Hunt. So he is based out of San Francisco and a few years ago, he started um, an app called Dr. Katz and he partnered with Mass General to start making content for uh, people with many different disorders. And 
so Mass General has been actively working with him on that, and I've been one of the people creating content, uh, mostly for OCD. And so the idea is to create psychoeducational videos for people with different disorders um, and treatment videos. And this program, Dr. Katz also interfaces with Epic, which is a huge medical and mental health Interface. You know, interface or database that holds a lot of um, information, medical records. And so if they can interface together, that allows treaters to show this content to their patients so that if they're on a waiting list and they're, they're, they're waiting to get help or even as they're getting treatment, they can view these resources and they might be able to, you know, help themselves or know about options for help without um, or even before they get to see a provider. So it's it's really exciting work. We are really hopeful that more people can get help because of this, because again, there just are not enough clinicians to see everyone. But also, if patients even know that these resources are out there, or they know that they can get help, it just makes it easier for them to reach out to know who to talk to, what things to try, and it just it makes the treatment more efficient and more likely to be successful. So that's the next goal that I have in my career is to help make resources more um, accessible to people so more people can get help, not just in places like Boston where we have a lot of resources, but in places across the country and hopefully across the world that don't have these resources. You know, medical uh, careers are, there's certainly plenty of opportunity out there for all areas of medical, especially after the pandemic. We've certainly burned a lot of people out with uh, with what had happened. And um, I'm sure finding specialists in special areas like yours is, is probably something that is in need. Do you have any suggestions for folks that are interested in maybe looking into uh, a career helping people with OCD? Or any specialist in the psychology field, are, are there resources or, or is there a suggestion that you would have? Mm-hmm. So again, for, for people who are maybe already in the field who are either, you know, uh, licensed social workers or psychologists, um, the International OCD Foundation has uh, trainings for people who are interested in becoming specialists in treating OCD. Uh, at Mass General, Dr. Sabina Wilhelm and, and I some, and some other people have done continuing education courses on um, how OCD, again, shows up in people, how to diagnose it, and how to treat it. And so, again, there are different opportunities between Mass General, the International OCD Foundation, to just get more specialized training in OCD, you know, for people who are just looking to become, again, like a a licensed social worker or psychologist. Again, there are many programs across the country where people can do that. And, you know, people can go into PhD programs, PsyD programs, um, master's programs. So it, there's, there's a large range of opportunities for people in that area also. And what about for folks that uh, want to find out more about OCD, whether they uh, are identifying with some of the symptoms you're talking with or maybe have someone in their family or a friend that might be going through this? Uh, What would you suggest they do Mm -hmm. uh, as far as where to reach out? The International OCD Foundation has a great website. I refer people there a lot. They have a lot of good um, books that people can read. Uh, They have a lot of good um, information about, again, how these different symptoms show up, Uh, books for family members as well. And sometimes I even get family members coming to me. So maybe they have someone in their life who has OCD, but that person isn't ready for treatment yet. And they're coming to me saying, how do I help this person or what should should I not do? So a lot of times family members need help as well. And so they can they can go there as well. Um, again, No OCD also has a lot of good resources. So it's NOCD, and they have again descriptions of the the different symptoms that can show up for people, just so people can see that and say, oh yes, there I am. That I I really relate to that. Jen Reagan. Massachusetts General Hospital and her own private practice. We've talked here about OCD. Thank you so much for coming on Occupations. I appreciate your uh, your candor and your uh, wonderful information. I've learned a lot today, which is great, and I might need to be checked for <laughs> OCD. We all Thanks have our little things. We all, we all have our things. Yeah. 
<laughs> thanks. And thanks so much. Uh, please join us again for the next episode of Occupations. Occupations has been brought to you by lotsofmaps.com. Please follow Occupations the Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find information about our next episode or to see what past episodes are available.